It's good to see you all, and likewise me, thank you. <laughs> um, so um, Kate was only partially right, because this is actually the last um, in our series, so you've missed it all. Um, but you can um, catch up online, there's been some really, really um, interesting, really fantastic talks, so do check them out. And this morning we're going to be looking at this story, the lady um, with the alabaster jar, which is a really famous, a really great story, and it's in all of the Gospels, um, so we'll come to that. As I was thinking about what to say and what to share, I started to think about some of my personal and favorite kind of dinner anecdotes, um, of which there are many. Unfortunately, because my entire family come to this church, it would not be appropriate to share them. Um, <laughs> but, um, so, but just to, you know, to clear a few things up, there were a few people who had celiac who were not diagnosed for quite a while, and we're all um, lightweights. So that, I think, covers, <laughs> excuses a multitude of sins. Um, a while ago, this was going back a few years, Ruth and I, um, we did this thing with um, a few friends, about 10 of us, and we did this thing called Try Something New. And each month, um, we'd get together and we'd have dinner. And the deal was that you had to prepare something that you'd never cooked before, try something new. Um, and we'd take it in turns. So there was a starter main dessert. So it worked out that you cooked about once every three months. Um, now, there was two schools of thought as to how we should interpret the one and only rule, which was try something new. The first school of thought was that you should try something new for you, but I would argue if that were the case, we'd call it try something new for you. We did not. Um, if it's in a recipe book, it's not new. The second school of thought, which is my own, uh, I was the only one who took this stance, was try something new, something that has never been done before. Um, and quite often would never be repeated. Um, now, before Ruth and I had kids, we, um, much more than a functional unit, we actually enjoyed each other's company. Um, and we went out to, uh, we, did, we did a pasta course. We learnt how to make pasta. Actually, that's not true. I learnt the ingredients for pasta. And do you know what they are? Does anyone here know what they are? It surprised me. There's a, a rumbling. Uh, it's flour and egg. That's it. And a thought struck me, which is probably striking you right now. Pasta is neither sweet nor savory. Who knew? And so, that was it. That was the genesis. That was the kernel. That was the start of my culinary empire, which was sweet pasta, or spasta, as I called it. <laughs> anyway, so I knew exactly what I was going to make next time I was on a dessert. Um, I was going to make... Everyone's favorite dish, lasagna, with a twist. It was going to be sweet lasagna. So um, I got dark chocolate and berries for the meat, oh, a bit of mascarpone, then a bit of pasta on top, and then a bit of dark chocolate and berries, another bit of mascarpone, and then pasta on top. Delicious. And um, I'll be honest, if not modest, um, it was, because when you're so good at something, it's hard to be modest. It, it was, in very slim slithers and cold, it was perfectly palatable. Or, it, it was palatable. Um, but Ruth had an idea, and I think this is where it all fell apart. Because up until that point, it was fine. It was Ruth meddling. She thought, what we should do is we should sprinkle some sugar on top, and then we should grill it. And then it would have this nice caramelized chocolate in it. That's what's missing. So we grilled it. But do you know what happens when you grill chocolate and mascarpone? They melt. So 
my lasagna became a sickeningly sweet um, chocolate and mascarpone berry soup with pasta floating in it. And <laughs> needless to say, um, not many, no one finished theirs. But, but in my defense, they were, they were particularly large starters of Maine that evening. And everyone said it was great. Um, but there, there is one of my... Uh, dinner stories. Now, you might be thinking, why have I told you that? And the truth is because um, I, th- I was reminded of it this morning and it made me laugh and I thought, I'll share it with you. But also, from a more profound point, I think, marginally, um, dinner is where we share life. This is, we share life around the table. There's a myth in our society and it's, it is a myth. It is that the most intimate place in the house is the bedroom. Here is James Bond in his office, either at the start or the end of a day. Kind of, like, it's very hard to tell sometimes. But the myth is that the bedroom is the most intimate place in the house. This is a lie. The most intimate place in the house is the dinner table because this is where you're truly exposed. This is where everything's laid bare. This is where you look back at everything that has gone before your history. It's where you look forward with all your hopes. It's where you share your hopes and fears. It's where you laugh. It's where you debate. It's where you discuss. It's where you learn. It's where everything is laid out and shared with the people around you. So the most intimate place in the home is absolutely the dinner table. That's where there is, there's nowhere to hide. It's where we share life. And so this series is really exciting because it's an opportunity to, to look at Jesus when everything is laid bare. Jesus at his most intimate. Jesus when he's not on a stage and, and teaching. Jesus when he's reclining with friends. Um, before this, um, well, I, I was doing lots of reading for this, um, trying to figure out what, what I should say and what I should share. And there's a load of theology. Um, lots of theologians have written a lot about this passage um, and there's lots of um, symbolism. As I said, it appears in all four Gospels. Um, sometimes, uh, in fact, it dif- the account differs quite wildly. Um, so sometimes Jesus' head's anointed, other times his feet. It's oil or it's perfume. And some scholars think it's um, just two different stories or several different stories. But in this one, we know that well, the, the chances of this extraordinary thing happening more than once, this extraordinary thing that G- even Jesus says is extraordinary and will be remembered, the chances of that thing happening more than once at someone's house, both times a guy called Simon, by coincidence, are slim to none. So this is, this is the same event, but it's, it, it's explained in different ways as people are expressing different truths, different theological truths through this story. So there's lots of theology that we could draw out of this. But I am in a personal place at the moment where I'm just a little bit bored of theology. Um, And because I'm speaking, you're going to have to go there with me. Um, Because at times I feel like we can theologize the truth out of these extraordinary stories that we read. Jesus was the most radical person who has ever lived. People who follow him have lived the most radical lives that have demanded absolutely everything of them. And we've reduced that to, we go along and we listen to someone explain, explain these stories away to a point where we can go, oh yes, that's the deep theological truth that I can take away. And as long as you kind of whisper it and nod, then that's all that Jesus wants. Just whisper and nod your approval and then we can all go home and go, oh, we're, 
I'm, I'm just so blessed. But I don't want to offend anyone, but I think that's just a load of bullshit because that is not what Jesus was about. He was this radical man. And, we're, and what I want to do, rather than look at the theology of what perhaps an, the anointing of his head, like getting ready for burial or any of that, I want us to sit at the other side of the table just briefly and observe Jesus and kind of go, what, what does that mean for us? If we come to this place and we want to learn about Jesus and we, have the, we want to imitate Jesus, what does it mean? What does this story mean for us? And how can we, we respond to that? So looking, hi Sarah. Hi. <laughs> and hi Flo, but, um, So looking, looking at this story, this, the first character, um, this, uh, uh, this woman, now, we know a little bit more about her than what Luke tells us. So Luke tells us it's a, this woman, and I think in verse 37, he says she's a lady of the city, which is a polite way of saying she's a prostitute, so she's a sinful lady. And Luke only refers to her as a sinful lady. But in Matthew, Matthew says it's Mary, who's Mary Magdalene, whose sister was Martha and brother was Lazarus. So we know a little bit about her. Jesus has got a bit of history with her. Jesus knows this lady. So we know a little bit more about her. And she, she comes to the table, which is where we all know she shouldn't be. That's not news to us. She didn't really have a place. She was a sinful lady. There's like, you know, really high caliber, proper people. You know, everyone's keeping up appearances. Nice Pharisee, you know, well-respected people. This is a good bunch of people. And this lady, this prostitute comes in. And she, not only does she, is she not ushered away, but Jesus allows this thing to go on where she's washing his feet or anointing his head. And he doesn't usher her out. He doesn't kind of go, Mary, stop that, just, and tuck his feet back under and usher her off. He allows her to continue. And we're sat at the other side of the table thinking, what the hell's going on? What's this guy doing? Like, this, this should not be allowed. This is not the proper way to do it. And more than any theology... I think we should look at that and go, my goodness, that's the grace of, of Christ. That's it. And if we're in that, just imagine being in that lady's footsteps or, or her shoes, which in truth is a place where I often find myself. Because this lady, she's got nothing and she, she winds up at Jesus' feet and she can't even begin to articulate what she wants to say or how she should respond. And it's all a muddle. And she hasn't got the words, and she starts pouring out this most extravagant perfume on his feet. And everyone's going, what's she doing? You can't pour out all that oil. Doesn't, doesn't she know it's really valuable? Yes, she does. But she's just so overwhelmed by Jesus and by the, what he's offering her that he's, she's just like, how can I respond? Take everything that I've got. I haven't got the words. And that's like us. And in truth, we as the church, I think, quite often endorse that kind of thing where, we, where there's a proper way to do things. There's a proper prayer to be said. There's proper words. There's proper actions. And don't you know you're not supposed to put your hand up in this song. This is more of a reflective time. Just arms out like this would be more appropriate. There's all of these unsaid rules. But here comes this lady who doesn't have a clue how she's supposed to behave. And she gets in a muddle. She says the wrong thing. She's doing the wrong things. And everyone's kind of wondering what on earth's going on. And Jesus just accepts her for it. And in fact, he even fights her corner and says... Let her come to me. You know, let her work this out. This is fine. So the first lesson of this, of this story is I want you to relate to that lady. 
and know that whatever difficulty you find yourself in, whatever problems you face, whatever questions you have, things that you get right or things that you get wrong, here's this lady who got it all wrong, who didn't have any of the answers, and yet Jesus just says, let her come to me. I'm fine with this. Let's linger in this moment. It doesn't matter. There's no rules. That's the first truth that we must all deal with from this story. The second one, and this is a little bit harder, because um, Simon, who I I can relate to, um, Simon, who in this story is Simon the the Pharisee, in Matthew, do you know what he's called? He's Simon the leper, which turns things on its head a little, because, you know, the prophecies, I mean, not prophecy, the, the prophet is all proper. He's got the rules, he's down, he's clean, he's allowed at the table, but a leper... Nuh-uh, no room for him. But this is, this is really hard because he judges her, doesn't he? he? He says, there's no room at the table for her. She doesn't know the rules. She, she's wasting. She's being wasteful. She's, she's a prostitute. She's unclean. She's a sinner. Um, and this is something I completely relate to because I have double standards. And I think if we're truthful, we probably all do. So whatever it is, whenever I have dinner and Ruth cuts a slightly bigger piece for her, I'm just like, just entirely inappropriate and then as soon as she turns her back just cut a bit off and or just switch them because if there's an injustice it has to go in my favor but the one that I'm really struggling with at the moment my son Reuben he's two and nine months and he's I say he's learning to share because he, he doesn't share um <laughs> he's awful in fact I've kind of given up on the sharing thing and I just celebrate the fact that he's he can win a fight um but but when he takes from another child it's like oh He's just sharing, you know, he's blessing me, he's only little. But as soon as a child takes from him, I'm just like, come on, Reuben, so that the, uh, the parents can hear. Come on, Reuben, there's clearly something wrong with that child. Won't play with them. And it's just these dual standards because I see the world through my own perspective. And I know what I'm dealing with. And because I know that all, all the struggles that I have, I can allow myself a certain amount of grace. But I never extend that to the person next to me because I don't understand the complexities of what they face. That's... That's how, how it goes, at least from my perspective. So Simon, he's whispering, and he says, what's, what's this lady doing here? And Jesus stands up for her, doesn't he? And he says, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay, I've, I've forgiven her. And he says, he says that great thing about um, someone who has forgiven much, has much to be thankful for, and will love much. But here's another thing. Simon, so we don't know when, when, um, when he got leprosy, but Simon got leprosy. So either Simon was healed at the time of this story, in which case he should know what it's like to be on the outside. Someone, he should know what it's like to be excluded. And he didn't extend that same grace that he, that he was denied or, he, or he, he was given because he was healed to the lady at his table. Or perhaps he got leprosy later because we don't know when, the, when Matthew wrote his gospel. So maybe Simon the Pharisee became Simon the leper after he caught leprosy. So, so we don't know the order that, that that happened. But when he caught leprosy, would he exclude himself? You know, so it's very easy to say this person has something wrong with them, we'll exclude them. But as soon as we have, it's something that we're dealing with. It's, something, it's an ailment that we're working through. 
And it's, I think that in itself is a real challenge, isn't it? Because it's always so easy to, to judge others. And yet the moment that the, that the plates have turned, do we see things differently? And we've, I think we've, there's a challenge here to be mindful of that. So I, don't, I really don't want to go on long because, um, because, as I said, I don't think we need to look at this in a theological way. I think we've got to look at this as Jesus, the man who ate with his friends. Interestingly, there's a load of theology about um, the verses before um, this, what we had read to us because John, you should read it, John says, um, I think, where do we pick things up? 36, I think in verse 34 it says that Jesus had a bit of a reputation for, for someone who likes his drink and someone who likes to eat a lot. And these are things you cannot say about the Messiah because he's God, right? You can't say Jesus was a drunkard. But what happens if Jesus, in fact, the first miracle in John, what does he do? So we looked at this, actually, in the first week of this series. He plies people with more alcohol who have already drunk all the alcohol. So there's two counts against this man. We had previously thought he was a stand-up kind of member of the community. It turns out he struggled with his drink a little bit. But I, I don't want to go down that route. I'm not sorry, God. But what happens if Jesus did like a bit of drink? What happens if actually the truth, one of the truths that we can take away is that Jesus liked to spend time with people? Jesus liked to party. Could we take that away? You know, too often we think that Jesus is this stern, serious guy and he's like, oh God, I've got all these rules and I want you to live like this and then eventually I will save you in a, in a very confusing way on the cross. But actually, perhaps the truth is that Jesus loved to live life with people and he lived life so generously that he included people and everyone around the edges were drawn in. And that when someone who came along who shouldn't have been allowed in, he just extended the circle and he just said, yeah, and he just lived life with people so generously. What would that look like? That would be so exciting. And so I'm not going to talk about any of the theology about anointing Jesus, about his burial, about the differences of of, uh, of how the stories are reported in those four Gospels. I don't really want to talk about Simon. I don't want to talk about Judas and how he, he, um, he didn't extend grace and then he left to go and sell Jesus himself. He kind of had a problem with the grace that Jesus showed um, Mary and then he sold Jesus out. We could talk about all these things. But all I want to do, and I hope you don't feel too shortchanged, I want us to remain at the other side of the table Observe Jesus. He's this man who welcomed someone who shouldn't have been welcomed. He's a man who silenced her critics, who said, you're, you're forgiven, you're forgiven, you're forgiven much, you're all included. What does that mean for us? I'm going to leave you with, um, I want us to be quiet for a bit, and then I'll pray for you, pray for me. But the challenge is this, don't theologize this. Put it into practice. This is not a theoretical thing. This is a muscular thing. This is something to be extended to the people in our community. This is what we're supposed to look like. Don't agree with this and say it's nice. Be challenged by this and say, that sounds hard, but I'm going to try and do it. So I'll leave you just a minute to think about maybe some relationships you have, people who perhaps we have a little bit of prejudice against, opportunities we have to draw people in. You know your stories, you know your relationships. Let's take a minute or so just to be 
to ask really hard questions of ourselves. Father, I thank you for these stories, how they have been um, recorded and shared with us. And I thank you for the really radical and challenging um, life of Christ. I thank you for all of the, the great truths that it tells us, the theological truths, the truths that you are God who is gracious and kind to us, but also the truths and the challenges it's, it speaks to our character. People who are simply open to others, who do away with the petty rules that say that one person can come to the table but another can't, because the truth is we are all like Simon, blind of our own weaknesses, our own inadequacies. And we should all be thankful that we are invited to a table. Father, I'm sorry for the times when I work so hard to earn the right to judge others. That's something I, I try to surrender. Father, I pray that um, more than a community of people who whisper that we agree that that's good we should do that we would be a community that are recognized as people who live this way that when people dine with us they couldn't help but see that's like the story in the gospels so father would this story simply stay with us this week like a like a burn that, that we can't shake, we can't, we can't rid ourselves of. Will we constantly be reminded that you are a God who extends a hand of welcome and grace to everyone and that we should be challenged, A, to accept that of ourselves, that our own inadequacies are not enough to exclude us, but by the same token, we should embrace the other. May we walk with that truth.